Good morning, everyone. It's really, really good to see all of you on this chilly winter Nebraska morning. Whew. Um, but isn't it warm being together like this? This is great. This is great. Love it. Um, you are a beautiful sight, no doubt about it. So, hey, welcome. We're glad that you're here. Uh, inner skeptic saints. We've been taking this journey together, calling out the fact that uh, our world often forces us um, to make choices that perhaps Jesus isn't asking us to make, right? Either choose this or choose this. Um, you know, everything is, it's, it's so dualistic. But Jesus is much more comfortable with kind of a non-dualistic way of living. Uh, Jesus invites us into a way of life that, um, it invites us into a wide open space, I was sharing this um, with the Set Up and Tear Down team this morning, and um, one of the psalms that I was sitting with this week was Psalm 118. And there's this part in the psalm that says, um, when hard-pressed, when hard-pressed, I cried to the Lord. And how many of us haven't felt that before? Like, you know, people are like forcing you to make a choice. What's it going to be? Is it going to be this or is it going to be this? And that's one way that we can feel hard-pressed, even in some religious environments, right? We're trying to pursue God, but we have questions. We have uncertainties. We have doubts. And it's like, no, 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 you need to choose. You need to fit in this box or this box. Which one are you? And so I read that psalm, when hard-pressed, I cried to the Lord. And then the psalmist says, he brought me into a spacious place. Oh, isn't that inviting, right? Isn't that inviting that God brings us into a spacious place where we can breathe, where we can kind of take time to wrestle with questions and uncertainties and, man, being brought into a spacious place, right? How many of us, we've experienced that in a relationship before where you get together with someone and you're like, man, when I'm in this person's presence, I just feel like I'm in a spacious place. I can be myself. I don't have to pretend. I don't have to hide. But you experience like, this intimacy together, and like the relationship just grows and it blossoms and it takes off. That's the kind of relationship that God invites us into. Um, So you're here this morning, and yeah, you're drawn to this sense like, man, the divine is at work in the world. There's so much beauty around me. I find myself in awe and worship, and I have to respond. But yet at the same time, I have a lot of questions. I kind of have this inner skeptic living within me. And Jesus is saying you don't have to choose between those two. Those two things are allowed to coexist together. In fact, not only are they allowed to coexist together, but but that's exactly the kind of contradiction that I'm looking to build my church on, right? Because Jesus, with the disciples, when they came to him um, after his death and resurrection, the scriptures tells us that, that they worshiped and they doubted. And Jesus didn't say, choose one or the other. Jesus said, come on, let's go. Let's make disciples and let's build my church. So inner skeptic saints, exactly the kind of people that Jesus is looking to build his church with. Uh, December 26th, 2004. Um, I don't know if that date rings a bell for you at all or not. But some tectonic plates shifted in the earth. Tsunami waves 100 feet high are created in the Indian Ocean. Without warning, 
230,000 people will perish. December 26th, 2004. Fascinating that it would happen one day after Christmas celebration. God with us, right? Emmanuel, God with us. That Christmas celebration. Um, But these tsunami waves come and 230,000 people will perish. Chances are that makes you stop and ask, why wouldn't God intervene in that situation? If there's really a God and he's really good, why wouldn't he step in and intervene? Now, I don't know if any of us had personal attachments to any part of that world or to anyone in that part of the world, but many of us have experienced tsunami waves of our own. Not literal tsunami waves, but but those things that come and just knock us off our feet. Um, Certain things happen in just the right kind of way, and we throw our hands up in the air, and we feel overwhelmed and washed away, and we scream into the sky, God, why? How? What's the purpose? Uh, And it can be real easy to reach a place where you're like, I can't do this. Is God apathetic towards me? What's going on? Certainly he could have done something, but why didn't he? If there is a God, maybe he's a little malevolent. Uh, Maybe he's a little just kind of into himself. Um, Maybe he's really not that good. These are the questions, the uncertainties that we wrestle with. At least, I, I hope we wrestle with them. And I'll get to that here in a little bit. Frederick Buechner uh, is a pastor in New York City for many years. Uh, one of my favorite things that he wrote were these words. Here is the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. And again, that's, that's kind of a, a beautiful, non-dualistic way of looking at life. Welcome to the world, Mosaic. Beautiful things and terrible things will happen. Do not be afraid. Eventually, as you, as you live your life, hopefully, um, hopefully your heart starts to grow, you know? Some things can happen. Either you can kind of become the Grinch, you know, where like your, your heart just kind of shrinks and it starts to harden. But hopefully along the way, you have some experiences where like, man, I feel like my heart is getting three times bigger, you know? Maybe you had an experience this week where just you, you interacted with someone that you love. You interacted with a beautiful part of the world around you, and you just felt like your heart was growing larger. Uh, I know for me, just um, you know, as a dad, just watching my three kids be born, like you go through an experience like that in your heart, just like, poof, and it, and it grows, which is a beautiful thing. But there's also a danger in allowing your heart to grow larger and larger, right? Because the larger your heart grows, the more of a target that it is to be devastated, to be torn apart, to be disappointed, right? How many of us have experienced that before, right? You loved, you gave yourself away only to have someone like trample on your heart and you're like, forget it. And so then it's easy just to kind of shut it down, let the heart shrink, let it grow calloused, let it grow hard, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 19, a beautiful portion of Scripture. 
So the Apostle Paul, he's writing to this ancient church in Ephesus, and this is what he says to him. You'll see it here on the screen. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Um, Gentiles is really just a way of saying those who um, have not responded, have not stepped into this thing that God is doing Um, you know, kind of recreating this new humanity in Jesus Christ. So that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. So notice what's going on here, right? They're separated from the life of God because of the hardening of their hearts. And then these next four words, having lost all sensitivity, having lost the ability to feel, having lost the ability to like empathize, to step into the reality of the pain and the hurt that's active in the world, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they are full of greed. Now, the reason I share this mosaic is because I want us to understand that being a saint, being someone who's responding to what God is doing in the world in Jesus, invites us into um, just growing in sensitivity, allowing our hearts to keep growing three sizes bigger, right? But as a result, what's going to happen is your heart will become a target and it will suffer a lot of hurt and it will get trampled on. And so I want us to sit with this reality. To be a person of faith is to be a person that feels. To be a person of faith is to be a person that feels. And to be a person that feels will lead you to awe and worship. Right? You'll feel things and it will just lead you to this, oh my God goodness, the world is a beautiful place. And being a person that feels will also lead you to great pain and to crisis of faith. We have to be willing to surrender to this reality. I I, I hate to break the news to you, but to be a person that feels is going to lead you to great pain and to crisis of faith. When that happens, this isn't evidence of a lack of faith, but the presence of an active faith. And that's that's what I hope that you that you catch in yourself. That when you get to this place and you, why, God, this is not right. How did this happen? Where are you? You could have stepped in, you could have stopped this. All of that is coming because you you're you're feeling like your heart's been growing bigger and larger. And then all of a sudden, the crap hits the fan, and you're like, Uh Uh-uh, but that's not a crisis of faith, guys. That's exactly what an active faith is. That's what an active faith does. It hurts. It experiences pain. Nobel Peace Prize winner Eli Weissel, um, a Jewish man who lived during the Holocaust, he wrote a memoir called Night. And in the midst of recalling some of the experiences that he interacted with in Auschwitz, there was a moment where a child in the camp was caught in some type of conspiracy. And so um, the young child is led to the gallows. And he recalls that the child being led to the gallows is standing on the chair 
and the noose being placed around the child's neck. And because the child didn't have very much weight, as the chair was kicked out, what normally would have been a quick procedure drug on for a long period of time. And Eli Weissel recalls in that moment, along with a few of kind of the wise Jewish kind of elders with him, as they're watching this take place, they simply cry out, where is God in the midst of this? Where is God in the midst of this? And in his memoir, um, he recalls this moment where he and some of the elders, they, they have this moment where they say, well, that's where God is. He's hanging from the gallows. He's there. Now, that can mean a couple of different things. It can mean, forget it, God is dead, God is apathetic towards us, God is nowhere. But at a deeper level, it can be that that's where God is actually entering into our suffering with us, actually entering into the pain and the hurt with us. So let's wrestle with, um, with some of these, these thoughts about just wh- how do we deal with just kind of like pain and hurt and evil in the world, right? And how do we respond to it? Because to truly live as inner skeptic saints, you know, not to have to choose one path or the other, we're going to have to find a way to navigate and walk this road. Because the reality is there's a lot of people around us, guys. And one of the things that we've said at Mosaic is we want to be a church community. I love the way that Carissa worded it when she was up here. Like, we share life with so much of our community around us. It's what makes us unique as a church. It's what makes us special. And in sharing so much of our life with people around us, there's a lot of people who have kind of walked away from faith because they've felt that they've needed to pursue this choice that, you know what, forget it. I can't reconcile why so much evil and suffering happens in the world, and so I'm just walking away from faith altogether. There is no God. God is dead. Where is God? He's there, hanging on the gallows. What's the point of it all? Um... So before we go further, just kind of let's bring a picture to this. Um, Jacob, right, one of um, Abraham's sons. Jacob is, is on the run early on in his story, and he's wrestling with who he is, what his calling is, situations that he's been involved in. And as he's on the run, eventually he ends up in this wrestling match with this angelic being that... that um, now readers of scripture have come to understand that, that Jacob is actually wrestling with God. And, and Jacob kind of gets out of this wrestling match. And, um, you know, kind of when they're all done, you know, the, the God and Jacob, they kind of do the chest bump with each other. Like, yeah, that was good, you know. Um, you can kind of picture it happened. Well done. And, and like, you get the picture that, no, this, this, like, divine angelic being that is God actually... Yes, this is what he wants. He wants this wrestling match with Jacob because here's this this intimate relationship together. And then he says to Jacob, now your name will no longer be Jacob, but your name will be Israel, which actually means one who wrestles with God. So again, to tie all of this together, being inner skeptic saints, to be someone who follows Jesus, to be someone who pursues and responds to God's pursuit of us, is to be one who wrestles with God. And the beautiful thing is that Jacob gets up from this wrestling match and he has a limp. So, so here's my encouragement to all of us. Be leery of listening to people whose faith doesn't walk with a limp. There are people who would love to have you walk straight up and be like, oh, you just have that faith, you know. Walk with a limp. I've learned in my life, I trust very few people who exercise their faith without a limp. Um, and it doesn't make them weak, but that limp makes them stronger. It makes them more real. It makes them more tangible. It makes them human. And so this is the opportunity before us, Mosaic. 
So what I want to do is I want to walk us through a story that, that Scripture tells us that hopefully can bring some sense to how do we deal with all of the evil and suffering around us. I want to tell us a story of, of evil, freedom, and God's love. A story of evil, freedom, and God's love. Genesis 1.26. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Like, let's do it. Let's, let's, create, let's create these human beings in our image, right? You almost see the Trinity at work here, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit involved in this process of creation. Let us, let us make humans in our image, and let's, let's invite them into shared rule. I don't know what your prized possession is, but this is like the equivalent of you taking your prized possession and giving it to an untrained toddler. Oh, dear Lord. You know, I don't know what it is for you, but in my house, if toddlers start to approach my turntable setup, oh, no, like, don't, don't go near the dials, don't start playing with the lid, don't pull out the album covers, don't touch it, you know? But, but God invites us into, like, sharing the rule with, with him. Psalm 115, verse 16, the highest heavens belong to the Lord. So he did keep a little bit for himself, right? He's like, this part up here, you, you can't touch this. Um, but, but the earth, he has given it to us. He's given it to us, guys. He's given it to mankind. Go ahead, rule over it. So God sovereignly shares his sovereign rule. God sovereignly shares his sovereign rule. God is pouring himself out in love to make room for others, to make room for us, Mosaic, to make room for us. But soon after this part of the story, um, everything starts to go to hell. Uh, or, Or maybe a better way to put it is this. Some piece of hell certainly breaks out. Rather than it all going to hell, some piece of hell starts to break out. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. That, that phrase there, take care of it, um, could best be translated to guard and to protect. Not just to take care of something, but actually to guard it and to protect it. So scripture wants us to understand, Mosaic, that even at this point in time, before anything has started to go out of control, before the fall of man, before Adam and Eve, you know, make this choice to eat of the fruit, there's something already there. There's some type of evil. There's some type of chaos that is already present because God is inviting them into this garden, but he's saying, guard it and protect it. So this has been a part of Christian thought, even before Christian thought, Judeo-Christian thought, for centuries, that something is already there. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. 
1 John chapter 5, verse 19. We know that we are children of God. And we also know that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Jude 6. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell... And, and this is where, you know, reading the Bible, even that word hell right there, there's like, what's going on here? The word hell there is actually the Greek word Tartarus. And Tartarus is a real place in Greek mythology where, like, it's like the abyss. It's like the deepest abyss. Um, and so there's all this odd poetic language going on of just, you know, like, whoa, like, there's a whole thing that's going on here, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. Now, in light of all of this talk, um, I want us to kind of think wisely about this. C.S. Lewis has this quote. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Um, So it doesn't mean that if you pull into the parking lot this week and you're in a rush and there's no open parking spot, the devil's out to get you. Sometimes it's just there's just not a parking spot. It's the way the world works, okay? Um, But yet on the other hand, um, when thinking about just evil and what's going on, we have to open ourselves up to the reality that even before we showed up on the scene, Before Israel's story began there in the garden, something preceded all of that. And and there's been speculation into other passages of of Scripture that we could go into, but but why does evil and suffering exist? There, there, There was something that preceded our showing up on the scene. And like there are dark forces at work, opposed to God, antagonistic to God, seeking death and destruction and evil. So, so Mosaic, biblical writers, although often wrestling with what feels like an absence of God, we, we see that a lot in the Bible. God, where are you? God, why aren't you showing up? Why aren't you doing this? Although they wrestle with that, they never stop to speculate on the problem of evil, right? Because we love having debates, right? We pull the philosophers together. Well, if there's a God and he's real, then why is evil present in the world? And scripture doesn't answer that question necessarily, which is why we still have no answers. Because the writers of scripture aren't asking that question. In In a sense, they knew why. They knew why evil was there. Created beings had used their God-given freedom to rebel, these, these angelic divine beings. Um, and, and this caused these cosmic powers and forces to just rebel against God's goodness in his love. Now, this is difficult for us modern people, right? Um, because after all, we've lived, I can't remember if I've talked about this here before or not. Um, there's a, a, a writer, a theologian who's done some great work on this. We live in a post-Scooby-Doo world. Any Scooby-Doo fans in the house? Remember Scooby and the gang? There they are, right? The mystery machine. So I don't know if I've hit on this before or not, but what was the purpose of Scooby-Doo, right? The whole purpose of Scooby-Doo was 
you know, Scooby and Shaggy, they knew, oh, you know, there's weird stuff happening here. Um, but in a half hour, in a half hour episode, and so then with the commercials, more like in about 18 minutes, they would walk you through logically why what you thought was kind of this enchanted, spooky world with these dark forces at work. Oh, it's just Mr. Jones behind the mask, and Mr. Jones got mad at Sally, and so he's out for revenge. So there was a way to logically think through all this stuff, and so we just have to take care of Mr. Jones and Sally, and if we take care of them, then, then boom, there won't be any problems in the world. So we live kind of in the post-Scooby-Doo era, era you know? Um, but the reality is we need to get, we need to get like back before Scooby. We, we need to embrace the reality that why is there evil in the world? Well, because there is. There's dark forces at work. There's powers and principalities that existed even before the creation of the world as we know it. And they still are running rampant and loose in the world. So how do we, how do we think about this? Here, here's kind of what I want us to take with, Mosaic. Thanks for thinking with me along the way, right? I hope, I hope what, I'm, what we're doing is giving you a level of nuance to think about these things. So creation, when we talk about God creating, we see God shares his creation with us, right? Creation is an act of love. That's what I want you to understand, that creation is an act of love. And love requires freedom, because there's nothing worse than being in a relationship where you want love to be present, but someone is acting with a certain level of control, right? Haven't you experienced that before? That's not pure love. It's love with control mixed in. But if we say that God is love, that's all God is. That's all God knows how to do. God is love. Love requires freedom. And evil and suffering exist because freedom exists. If I gave toddlers unfettered access to my turntable I guarantee you it would be destroyed. Evil and suffering would exist, but I exercised pure love. It's yours. I share it with you. So this is why, and and guys, freedom has no origin. Freedom is the ultimate frontier. If you share freedom with someone, like it it is the ultimate frontier. There is only room for possibility now possibility of complete chaos and destruction, but also possibility, as we'll see, for beauty in cultivating so much wonder and awe in the world. Freedom has no origin. It is an ultimate frontier. And so God meets us in our freedom mosaic. God meets us in our freedom and he dwells with us, right? It shows up in the person of Jesus. And, and God, he, he suffers with us in the midst of this world, and he still works through evil and suffering to bring about good. Jesus is the ultimate picture of God's action against evil. So, so rather than try to solve the problem of evil, Mosaic, rather than try to solve the problem and feel forced into like, okay, well, if there's a good God, then why does evil exist? Like, forget it. That, that's, we, we know why. Because creation is an act of love. Love requires freedom. Freedom has no origin. It is the ultimate frontier. You know, just respond to that the next time someone says to you, why do you follow God? God's not good. If God was good, he, you know, he wouldn't allow all this stuff to happen. Oh, yeah? Well, creation is an act of love, and love requires freedom, and freedom is the ultimate frontier. <laughs> you know, okay, okay, hold on. No, no, let's sit down and unpack that a little bit. Like, let's unpack that a little bit. 
Like, do, do you really want freedom? Or do you want God constantly stepping in and meddling in your affairs? Like, isn't that what pure love does? Doesn't pure love create just an open space for, for possibility? Right? I, I felt hard-pressed. I cried to the Lord. And he brought me into a spacious place. Because that's what God's love does, is it creates a space, for, a space for freedom. So rather than try and solve the problem of evil, evil, we best enter the ongoing story by way of surrender and rebellion. And this is where we're going to close this morning, guys. And this is where I want us to allow our imaginations, allow our hearts to kind of make this a tangible reality in your life, okay? What is the tsunami wave that you have faced or that you are facing? Um, will you allow yourself to surrender to it? I'm, I'm looking at Stefan because I know Stefan likes to surf, right? And so all you can do is surrender to the wave, right? I mean, you're not going to master that wave. You're not going to control it. All you can do is surrender to it. But yet at the same time, like I, I think being a surfer probably carries like a certain level of rebellion too because it's like even though I have to surrender to it, I am going to ride it. Like, I'm going to ride this wave, and I'm going to make the most of it, you know? So, so surrender and rebellion. So whatever the tsunami wave that you're facing right now, will you surrender to it? You know, shed tears. Shed tears. Rage at the sky. You know, but don't do that alone. Do that in community with other people. You know, Jesus modeled that. Jesus shows up at his friend's grave, Lazarus, and what does he do? Jesus just enters into this moment of just shedding tears. You know, just surrender to it. Like, evil is here in the world. And it exists because it existed long before us, and creation is an act of love, and love requires freedom. And freedom is just a possibility for anything to happen. Um, but yet we walk faithfully, right? Even as we surrender to it, we walk faithfully, but we walk with a limp. And so that's okay. Go ahead and walk with a limp, Mosaic. Walk with a limp. And trust other people who, who live a faithful life, but walk with a limp. And be careful of people who say they live a faithful life, but don't walk with a limp. But don't just surrender to it. Rebel. Rebel against it. I'm being serious. Like, if you need to this morning, when you walk up to these tables this morning, because when Jesus showed up on the scene, Jesus showed us what God's rebellion toward evil begins to look like. Jesus shows up on the scene and he's like, I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to take care of this. And I'm also going to suffer the full extent of evil. I'm going to take on the world's violence and let it destroy me. But I will rebel against it and rise again on the third day. And so when you walk to these tables this morning, what you're doing is you're recalling that, yeah, evil may exist in the world, but I'm rebelling against it. And so why do I come to church? I don't care. For all the reasons you come to church, I hope you come to church because as you walk down these aisles with other people on a Sunday morning, you're walking out being like, evil's not going to have the final say. I'm rebelling. And yeah, I'm surrendering to it too, but I'm rebelling against it. But I don't rebel in the way that the world rebels. I don't rebel and add evil to evil. I rebel in the way of Jesus. So we gather, we sing, we hope, we proclaim that Jesus is stronger. We love, we risk, we trust. We know that the worst thing is never the last thing. This is how we deal with the problem of evil. We surrender and we rebel. And then we keep in mind that our future, guys, is pretty darn glorious. 
Paul writing to the church in Rome, Romans chapter 8, verses 18 and 19, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. All of creation is waiting for this day. And even as we've incorporated into our gatherings here at the end, when we say together, Christ has been crucified, Christ is risen, Christ will come again, that's the rebel yell. In the midnight hour, right? I mean, that, that's the rebel yell. Like, we can't do it on our own, but Jesus has stepped into it. And whatever tsunami wave has brought destruction, it will be cleaned up. It will be dealt with. And there is a glorious future awaiting us. We surrender and we rebel. I want to say this because... In some forms of especially modern evangelical Christianity, there's some teaching out there that God somehow ordains evil so that he can somehow bring glory to himself through it. Now, I I could teach a whole other sermon on this, and maybe someday I will. I want us to be very careful of that. In some way, it kind of paints a picture that God ordains this evil and even has his hand in somehow bringing it about because somehow he'll bring glory to it. I could never say to a friend of mine who's maybe had to go through a deep loss, hey, um, you know those tears you shed? Thanks for shedding those tears because God needed those tears to bring glory to himself. No. God is a God of love and of freedom. And freedom is the ultimate frontier. And freedom, as a result, means that we deal with suffering. We surrender to it, but we rebel against it. God doesn't ordain this evil. He steps into it, he takes it on himself, and he recycles it back. And there's a new creation that's coming. So I want to invite the worship team up here as we close, guys. And let's uh, just be an opportunity, you know? Whatever the tsunami wave is that frustrates you right now, whatever it is, I, I, I happen to see, we look around the world, it's like, man, there's so much craziness going on, you know? Uh, on Friday, like, I don't know, you look on social media and it's like, stop looking, you know, but you see stuff and like there's this situation in D.C. where this Native American man is dealing with just these faces yelling at him, you know, and he's there at an indigenous people's march. And it's easy to look at what we say, look at that face of evil. I want to say, don't look at the face of evil, look at the face of Nathan Phillips from Omaha Nation. Look at his face. He's the one who stands there and surrenders to the evil that's right in his face. But he doesn't surrender to it, but he rebels to it. But he doesn't rebel in the way that the world knows rebellion. He rebels with a love and a steady presence and a faithfulness. And he's going to walk with a limp, but that's okay. That's, that's what we do. You know, so as you come to these tables this morning, Mosaic, let it be an opportunity. Whatever it is that you're facing, you're like, man, I just wish this weren't a part of my life right now. I wish that hadn't been a part of my life. Surrender to it, but rebel against it. And know that God has rebelled against it too. Um, and that God is doing something about it. And then let's go out into the world, right? And let's go out into the world and let's live our lives amongst our neighbors and let's teach them what it looks like to surrender but also to rebel against it in the way that Jesus invites us to rebel against it. So thanks for going on this journey with me. Um, I appreciate it. And uh, it's a beautiful journey that God takes us on. Let me pray for us, okay? God, thank you so much that you invite us to this table that Jesus has prepared for us. Um, That before he was crucified, he took bread, he gave thanks and he broke it and he said, this is my body given for you. And at the end of that meal, he took the cup and he said, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood, which is for you. 
love, grace, mercy, forgiveness. God, it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. It's your kindness that invites us to come back home, and it's your kindness that invites us to surrender to the tsunami wave that is either before us or that's already wreaked havoc on us, but it also invites us into an act of rebellion, a rebellion that ultimately Jesus has already started and Jesus will finish in in his time. So yeah, thanks. Thanks for this community, this family of Mosaic that we each call home, and thank you that your love envelops us now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.